Hello everyone, Rick Cole here for the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. We have episode two for you today, brought to you by newspapers.com, the world's largest online archive of historical newspapers, and by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario. Last week, we gave you a preview of the 1969-70 National Hockey League season, and this week we'll bring you news and notes from the opening week. Some of the stories we'll covering will include the full results from the first night of the season, the Red Wings firing of coach Bill Gadsby after only a couple of games, Bobby Hull's continued absence from the Chicago Blackhawks lineup, and a couple more goaltenders switching to wearing masks full-time. We'll talk about the suspensions of Ted Green and Wayne Mackey, and we'll also have an interview with Mr. Green from his Ottawa General Hospital room as he gave it to the Toronto Telegram. We also have a very special uh, person of the week this week. So stay tuned and let's see what kind of news we have from the first week of the 1969 National Hockey League season. Now, before we do get started with all that, uh, I did have something else I wanted to mention. Uh, One thing that came across my desk this week were some comments about a young player that uh, made the Bruins team in 1969-70 out of training camp, a rookie forward named Garnet Ace Bailey. While Ace was never a headliner in the National Hockey League, he was a much-beloved figure by those who worked within the game and knew him. Ace was taken from us far too early during the events of 9-11, as many of you would know. Now, I never did meet Ace personally. He was always one of those character guys that I had on my list to get to know. And sadly, that never did happen for me. But one of his very good friends was former Maple Leaf goalie Eddie Chadwick, who's also a very good friend of mine. Ed and Ace spent much time together during their employment as scouts with the Edmonton Oilers, and they forged a strong friendship long after their professional association ended. I spoke with Ed about his friend Ace and how he learned about the awful news of Ace's death on September 11, 2001. Okay, so today today is uh, September 11th, 2019, and uh, it's a day, of, among other things, that we lost Ace Bailey, who was a good friend of yours. Yes. Tell me about Ace, Ed. Well, when I went to Edmonton, uh, Lorne was there, of course, and I knew Lorne. Lorne Davis. Davis, uh, Davis, and I knew Ace a little bit, but then Ace and I got together a lot, and, uh, and then when, they used, when he used to come into Ontario... I would take him out in Ontario, and he said, well, where are we going today? We're going to Belleville. Well, we're stopping in Oshawa, ain't we? What are we stopping in Oshawa for? Well, isn't that where Terry lives with the, the kids? And my son, Terry? I said, yeah. Well, he said, I got things for the kids. <laughs> okay, so we stop in at the Terry's house, and he would go in and give the kids that coloring books and things like that and everything else, and then we would go on to Belleville. And every time he came in, in the Toronto to take him somewhere that. He always went and got stuff for the kids. I could you know the, and uh, I used to, when I used to phone Terry, Ace is in town, okay, I'll tell Dolly we guys will be in, yes, I could know. And then after that, and Ace, when I went down to Boston, I used to live, stay at Ace's house. I could all mm-hmm. the games together and that. And he took care of me. Nobody would really come close to me when Ace was around. And he was just so good to me. And then he said, one day we're going to, I think it's up to uh, up north of uh, Boston to a college game. And he said, it's Valentine's Day. He said, Ed, I'll be back. I said, okay. I said, then we'll go on up to, I, I can't think where we went, to tell you the truth. Uh, Rick, if it comes to me, I'll tell you, no. Anyway, so he went out. He went down to the wharf. He knew all the guys that were the fish and come in. And he, bought a, he got a, tur- uh, a lobster tail about, I don't know how big it was, for his wife for Valentine's Day, <laughs> tied it to the, tied it to the table, leg of the table, and left it on the floor for her. 
and she'd come home, she'd cook it. And I could all, uh-huh. and I said, <laughs> he said, I can, I go down there every Sunday morning, get some cream, fish and shrimp and all that. I could all, I said, but I said, you what? He, he tied it down the floor. I just broke my I So it was the, down the live lobster then? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and then when Kathy got home, she realized who did it, whatever, mm-hmm. and she cooked it. I could all, but I said, Ace, you're something else. But then, the last time I talked to Ace, he left us. He went with uh, with uh, L.A. with Gretz. When Gretz went, Ace went with Gretz. Uh, I see. And, okay. Uh, so last, went down and I met him scope. a few times on the road, but basically he was on doing the pros. I was doing still doing amateurs. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last time I talked to Ace was at the last my last meeting in uh, in the draft. My last year of the draft in two thousand and one. And uh, he was sitting in the front row. Then I went by and he said, hey, Chad, come here. He said, here, you're retiring. I said, yeah, hey, I'm retiring. He said, I'm going to miss you. I said, well, you're going to another team. How are you going to miss me? He said, I used to see you some in the row and call you. Remember, yeah, I'm, I'm going to miss you. And I said, well, Ace, that's that fun. When you come in the forward area or, or come in the Toronto, call me. I'll meet you. Like, you know, he did a couple of times. And then, of course, the day I was uh, working for... I was working for the island. No, I was working for uh, Edmonton. And I was in a tournament in Buffalo on that day. I was 11th. And we were playing in a tournament. It was four of us went over from Buffalo, from Fort Erie to Buffalo. And we started at the sixth hole. We teed off at and we come the to the ninth. In the golf about. tournament. Come in the ninth. I went to the Washington, I walked in, and I saw these planes hitting the building. I said, the guy said, what the hell is that, a movie? He said, no, that's the real thing. And I didn't realize. I went on to watch come up. Then all of a sudden, we got to the, I went back to the, met him at the seventh hole. We got to the eighth hole, and the guy came out in a, in a, in a, ca- in a, a, a cart, and he said, you guys from Toronto? I'm from Canada? I'm from Fort Erie? Yeah. Get out of here now. They're closing the border because this, this have, real thing happened. The planes have hit the, the buildings in New York. And go, oh my God, I could all. So I came, we got home, we got to the to the customs. We all had our passports and everything else, but they went through everything. Even we knew the guy, but his boss was watching. They had to check everybody coming back to States. Anyway, so I got home and I had a phone call. As soon as I got in, uh, the phone call came from Edmonton. And he said, we think Ace was on the one of the planes. I said, you what? Yeah, we think he was on the second one, but we're not sure. We're, we're finding out. We'll call you back. And I'm sitting there waiting for the phone call when the phone call come. And it was uh, Prendergast. Remember him? Prendergast, yes. And he said, Ed, Ace was on the second plane. And I'm watching the TV and the second plane sitting in that building. I went out of it. Mm-hmm. In fact, I get tearing now when I think about it. I called I called Terry. I said, Terry. He said, no. Said, yeah. So I called Pat, my daughter in Florida. She said, I knew somebody in that plane you would know. And she wrote one hell of an article on that. Pat owned a newspaper in well, Florida. Yeah, they owned, uh, in, in Englewood. Yeah, in Englewood uh, Review. Mm-hmm. And I have that. I'll look, that, I'll look for that uh, for you. That writing, I still got that right up. Talked about Ace, how she, Ace used to stop for the kids and think that was really good. And uh, and of course, uh, at the, and then I called Lou. I was dating Lou at the time, Lou Caution, and I called her. She come over and settled me down. And it took me a long time to settle down. That was a pretty bad. But I didn't realize that the other kid that scuttled one was on the same play. Mark Davis. Yeah, yes. I didn't realize that till later on. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the last time, last time I went to the Hall of Fame. Well, the first time I went to Hall of Fame after that, and I saw Ace's picture and his kid's picture at, mm-hmm. the, at the entrance, I had to walk away. But Ace was so good to me that, uh, you know, I lost a great friend. And uh, he would have done anything for me. But those things happen. He was one of the good guys. One yeah, day. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I said to Terry, I think Ace would have fought him. And Terry said that, I don't think he would have had a time, but he did. Terry and Doty went to the 
memorial in New York mm-hmm. when they're in Cleveland, and they heard a heard Ace talk to his wife on the plane. Oh, he called her on the What's happening? Yeah, and she knew, and she, I got over to Kathy, and said uh, Kathy talked back a little bit, but not much, uh, and Ace said, eh, "We're done." You know? I know Terry told me what he said. He said a little bit, but he wouldn't tell me everything. Like, mm-hmm. you know? And that was just personal for Ace and his wife. Sure. You know? So I tell you, I took a lot of me, Rick, for a long time. We'll have lots more audio with Ed Chadwick and many others when our premium episodes become available in the not-too-distant future. The 1969-70 National Hockey League season opened on Saturday, October 11th on five fronts. This season would be the final one of the 12-team era in the National Hockey League, an era that lasted only three years. There was a lot of anticipation among the six newer teams as they all strove to achieve some level of parity with the six franchises whom they joined in 1967. It was also the year that there appeared to be cracks in the dynasty that was the Montreal Canadiens. A strong Boston entry had given notice that they would be more than a match for the Habs in every way possible. Opening night saw a mixture of uh, results that surprised quite a few people. One thing that was expected, the Stanley Cup champ Montreal had no trouble whipping the hapless Los Angeles Kings, who look more like they're regressing in year three rather than improving. The Habs dumped the Kings by a 5-1 score at the Forum in Montreal. Detroit showed some improvement by edging the rebuilding Maple Leafs 3-2 at the Olympia in Detroit. They had strong contributions from several former Toronto players. The St. Louis Blues provided the big surprise of the night. They were surprisingly dominant as they blasted the Chicago Blackhawks 7-2 before over 16,000 screaming fans at the St. Louis Arena. The Minnesota North Stars showed an improved work ethic and lots of grit as they shut out the Philadelphia Flyers in Bloomington, Minnesota, and in the other game of the night, the Pittsburgh Penguins and Oakland Seals sawed one off at 2-2 before over 8,000 fans at Pittsburgh. And now let's get to the first game of the night, which was in Montreal. One can think and be said about the Montreal Canadiens and their organization. They know how to honor their greats. Before the Montreal-Los Angeles game started, tribute was paid to four Montreal hockey legends. Unveiling of oil paintings took place, paintings of Howie Morenz, Toe Blake, Maurice Richard, and Jean Beliveau. Now after the Canadians hammered the Kings 5-1, many of the 16,454 fans would have favored another painting to be added to that group, that of little Henry Richard, who stole the show in the NHL opener. The graying 33-year-old center, skating virtually as he did coming into the league 14 years previously, set up the first goal by Mickey Redmond and controlled the middle lane the rest of the way before scoring a couple goals himself in the third period. Both of Bouchard's goals were beautiful, with the second one an absolute work of art. Old Claude Provo had fed Henry a lead pass as he streaked past Kings defenseman Dale Rolfe. Rolfe tried to drape himself around the diminutive center, but he couldn't as Rogers was too quick and ducked away, faked to one side, and then beat Jerry Desjardins neatly. The defenseman was trying to hook, but he couldn't when I leaned the other way, Richard said. He would have had to pull me down. I was pretty lucky that Desjardins moved with me, so I was able to shoot to the other side of the net. The two goals gave the pocket rocket an NHL total of 290 for a fine career. Off his performance in this opening game, the pocket rocket should hit 300 in jig time this season. Young Mickey Redmond probably played his best game ever on foreign ice, and he could have had a couple of more goals. As it was, 
The one he scored, he neatly steered home on a pinpoint pass from Richard to open the scoring in the seventh minute of the second period. Bobby Russo, playing mostly at center instead of a customary right wing on a line with Ivan Cornoyer and rookie Mark Tardif, made it 2-0 in the last minute of the same session. Desjardins came up with a fine performance and goal for the Kings, despite giving up five goals. Only as many great saves kept the Kings in the game and the score respectable. The Habs outshot the LA visitors 47-23. to Jean Beliveau, fresh out of the hospital where he was suffering from fatigue and received treatment, worked on the power play, took a few regular shifts, but it was clear that Big John wasn't up to par. He said afterwards he was still a little tired. I don't have any power, he said. Maybe a couple of games will get it back. At St. Louis, the Blues were spurred on by a standing-room-only crowd of 16,613, the largest ever to see a hockey match at the St. Louis Arena. They buried the Blackhawks by a score of 7-2. The Blues were presented by the Clarence Campbell Trophy by the league president before the game. The trophy is emblematic of their West Division championship last season. Ab McDonald led the scoring parade for the Blues with a pair of goals, followed by one each from Gary Saverin, Frank St. Marseille, Phil Goyette, Jim Roberts, and Jean-Guy Talbot. Talbot scored his goal while Roberts was in the penalty box for the Blues, and that feat produced the biggest ovation of a very noisy evening. Both of the Blackhawk goals were scored by rookie Jerry Pinder, a University of Manitoba student. He produced both goals in his first professional game. He was one of eight new players on the ice for Chicago, and those included goalie Tony Esposito, who was drafted from Montreal last summer. The seven goals against was an inauspicious debut for Esposito, but by the way he played in the exhibition season, better things are ahead for Tony. Pinder's first goal was set up by veterans Chico Mackey and Stan Makita. Mackey passed out from behind the boards to Makita at the left center. Stan was checked out of his shot, and he dropped the puck to Pinder, who whipped the 15-footer that escaped Jacques Plant's right foot kick. Jerry closed the gap to 3-2 early in the third period when he and another veteran, defenseman Doug Jarrett, broke in on Plant. Jarrett fainted the goalie to the left, then fed a pinpoint pass to Pinder in front of the net, and the rookie found the opening on the far side. The Blues looked quite superior to the Hawks in this one, quite surprisingly so. They had remarkable puck control and timing for the first game of the season, and they continuously roughed the Hawks out of position and out of the way. That mauling included a fist fight between Jim Roberts and Pitt Martin, and that contributed to the seven-goal harvest for the Blues. That's the most goals the Blues have ever been able to score against an Eastern Division club. Now at the Olympia in Detroit on a Saturday night Maple Leaf road game, something extremely unusual, all eyes were on a player who was making a comeback with the Red Wings. Returning to the National Hockey League after a self-imposed exile of four years was 30-year-old Carl Brewer. Brewer, in his first game back, played like the all-star defenseman he was when he walked away from the Toronto Maple Leafs back at the start of the 1965-66 season. With a record-opening night crowd of 14,562 sweltering, sweating Olympia fans, Brewer played a strong defensive game and also helped set up the winning goal in Detroit's 3-2 win. It hasn't changed, Brewer said after the game. It's the same game and many of the same players. I can't say I noticed anything different. Maybe in myself, I'm older, but I certainly wouldn't say any wiser. However, hockey now for me is not the beginning and the end. It's a year-to-year thing. As for old Toronto companions that Brewer can find on the Red Wings, he can count on Frank Mahovlich and Bobby Bond. There are also a couple of other ex-Leafs on the team, Peter Stemkowski and Gary Unger, but those two came along to the Leafs after Brewer had left. Brewer said, I really suppose it was Frank and Bobby that decided me to sign with the Wings in the first place. I found them happy and relaxed, and immediately, while this sounds like a comparison of one team to another, that's not my intention. I want to avoid comparisons. 
But what I do find is a more relaxed atmosphere here in Detroit. Perhaps it's because there isn't the same pressure from the center of hockey, which is Toronto. In the first period, coach Bill Gadsby got a strong performance from his number two line of Bruce McGregor, Pete Stemkowski, and Nick Libet. Libet, who tangled early with Ronnie Ellis in a brief fight, beat Toronto goalie Bruce Gamble for the first of two Detroit opening period goals. McGregor then added the second one after Gamble had made terrific saves on both Frank Mahovlich and Alex Delvecchio. Early in the second period, Murray Oliver scored for the Leafs, but Mahovlich got that one back for Detroit while Toronto defenseman Ricky Lee was serving a penalty. Brewer set the winning goal up with a long pass in the center ice zone that broke Mahovlich in alone on Gamble. It took Ron Ellis only 49 seconds to score for the Leafs to start the second period, but the Leafs couldn't get any closer after that. The loss spoiled the debut of new Toronto coach Johnny McClellan. He confessed to personally having a few extra butterflies before his first game behind the bench of a National Hockey League club. Johnny said, We were a little shaky in the first period, but we settled down after that and we played well. I thought we were in it all the way. Our defense particularly played well, and remember, they're all kids. It would have been nice to win, but I'm not ashamed at all of our performance. Before a standing room only crowd of 14,856 in Bloomington, Minnesota, the North Stars, whipped into a state of super preparedness by tyrannical coach Ren Blair, blew the Flyers right off the ice, and they won their National Hockey League opener 4 nothing. The win for Minnesota spoiled the NHL coaching debut of the Flyers' Vic Stasiuk, who last year was coaching Quebec in the American Hockey League. Stasiuk said, we just didn't have any speed. The Flyers only managed 21 shots in losing their season opener for the third straight season. Stasiuk said, we need some wingers who can shift gears and really go when the puck's in front of them. Minnesota's got a couple in Grant and LaRose. That's what we need, a little zip. Now, the only zip the Flyers had that night was on the scoreboard. The North Stars were a little lucky on two of their first period goals, but luck wasn't the principal factor in the final score. The home team simply outskated, outpassed, outshot, and outclassed the visitors. Bob Barlow, a 34-year-old rookie, scored his first NHL goal on a 25-foot slap shot at 108 of the first period. Barlow had only been on the ice a few seconds in his first NHL game when he scored the goal. North Star center Ray Cullen began the scoring play by winning a faceoff. He was in the crease obstructing Perrant when Barlow fired his shot. Perrant argued, but referee Bruce, Bruce Hood ruled that defenseman Ed Van Imp had shoved Cullen into the crease, an activity that Ed has been pretty good at over his years in the NHL. The sides were even when Claude LaRose rifled a 30-footer past Perrant from a wicked angle on the right side. Wasn't Bernie's fault, though. In fact, he didn't have a chance. LaRose's low shot ticked off Wayne Hillman's stick and changed direction radically, beating Perron on the far side. The shorthanded Flyers were trying to ice the puck from their own zone when bad luck struck again. Joe Watson's pass hit Danny O'Shea in the back pocket and the disc fell right at his feet. O'Shea wheeled around, faked the pass, and beat Perron with a hard 30-footer. That 3-0 score held until 1804 of the final period, when veteran defenseman Leo Boyvin connected on a long shot from the point that Perrant still hasn't seen. Final score, North Stars 4, Flyers zip. The final game of the night was at Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, where 8,230 fans showed up to see the Penguins and Oakland Seals skate to a two-all tie. Now, the Penguins' debut in the NHL this season was actually quite startling. They didn't look anything like the pitiful club that finished out of the playoffs in the NHL last year. The Penguins looked nothing like last season's team as they bruised the Oakland Seals throughout most of the game, but settling for the 2-2 tie had to be a disappointment to coach Red Kelly. Until late in the third period, 
Penetrating the Penguins' goal was like trying to open Fort Knox with a skeleton key. The Seals scored twice within 24 seconds in that final period to put the score even at two at the end. Keith McCurry, who led the Penguins with 25 goals last year, is still the leader on this club. He beat Seals goalie Charlie Hodge twice in the first period on power plays. Late in that first period, McCurry made a fancy move, turning completely around at the goal mouth and scoring easily after taking a pass from rookie Michel Briere. Briere, who's shown enormous promise with this club, earned his first point in the NHL, and he tied for the club's scoring lead during the exhibition season. Bob Dillabo, who was traded from the Penguins to Oakland last year, beat Joe Daly in goal for the Penguins with a 15-foot shot at 33:45 of the final period. At 14:09, Norm Ferguson tied it up when he banged home a Doug Roberts rebound. Now Ferguson required 14 stitches above his left eye early in the second period when he struck his head on the boards after being checked hard by veteran Pittsburgh right-winger Kenny Schinkel. But Ferguson, a 34-goal scorer as a rookie last year, returned to the lineup at the start of the third period and ended up tying the game. Oakland coach Fred Glover was grim after the game. He didn't have much to say. In fact, it was one simple sentence. They stood around too much. Glover obviously felt that his team should have known how to handle the Penguins. When he asked if he had passed on any information to his team before the game, Glover just replied, they played him twice in training camp and they saw they were a changed hockey club. Obviously, they should have known better. Now, the tie was disappointing to the Penguins for sure, but the one point they received is more than they have ever managed in their National Hockey League history. Both of their previous opening nights were against the Montreal Canadiens, and as expected, both were losses. Penguins look like an improved team this year, and they just might have a shot at the playoffs after all. One reason for the Chicago Blackhawks' dismal performance against St. Louis on opening night was probably the continued absence of superstar Bobby Hull. Now, as one of the highest-paid players in the NHL, Hull says he has retired from the Hawks because the club has not lived up to a fringe benefit agreement that would allow him more savings. The announcement of retirement is not official. President Clarence Campbell says the league's central registry has not received notification of the retirement from the team. Hull's business manager, Lester F. Stanford of Toronto, said that the left-winger notified the Hawks by telegram on October 15th that he has retired. Stanford's quick to explain, however, that this was simply protection against Hull's suspension for failure to report to the club. If Hull persists in going into voluntary retirement, it would require the consent of the Chicago team, which would then have to put him on waivers and make him available to the rest of the NHL. In Chicago... Tommy Ivan, general manager of the Blackhawks, said he had received a telegram from Hull announcing his retirement. Ivan said, we don't intend to do a thing about it. It doesn't mean a thing. We have a four-year contract, and we expect with three years left to run it, Bobby Hull will fulfill the contract. Ivan said the high-scoring left winger will remain on the active list, and if he should change his mind, the way would be open for him to rejoin the club. Now, if the waivers were asked of the other 11 league teams, it could mean that Hull would be available to any club that could claim him for $30,000. Now, they'd pay that fee in the hopes that they could persuade him to end his retirement, which would be a pretty easy decision for Hull. The unofficial retirement is complicated. Hull signed the standard NHL contract in 1968, and he's not disputing that. But Stanford said that Hull also initialed a fringe benefit agreement with the Hawks on October 13, 1968, which the player claims was not honored by the hockey club. Bobby claims that, according to the subsidiary agreement, he would be paid more than $100,000 a year for four years, including last season. Stanford said the agreement was handwritten and initialed by Hull and Hawks president William W. Wirtz, and it included payment deferments, which would reduce the player's tax burden in the present. Hall says there were two copies of the agreement, one for himself and the other for Wirtz. 
Now, apparently, the player has misplaced his copy, and the club is not acknowledging that they have one either. Hull left the Hawks training camp in Chicago in September and returned to his home at Picton, Ontario, after negotiations with management ceased. There has been some discussion that Paul could have the possibility of joining the Canadian national hockey team if the dispute with the Blackhawks is not settled and his retirement from the NHL does indeed become official. Hull denied this in an interview just before leaving for a cattle auction out west. Bobby said it's just talk that started when it first came out that I was dissatisfied with Chicago. Bobby later said this whole thing's left a sour taste in my mouth. Under the circumstances, I think a trade might be in order. I don't really care who I might, where I might go or who I might play for. What concerns me right now is that Chicago might be blackballing me with the rest of the league. As the Red Wings were preparing to play their third game of the season after two straight wins at the Olympia in Detroit, some crazy news broke. Coach Bill Gadsby, just before that game, was told he was no longer employed by the Red Wings. Gadsby was fired after winning two straight games. Now, how did this happen? Well, a lot of it has to do with Red Wings owner Bruce Norris. Bruce Norris and Toronto's Stafford Smythe have a lot in common. They both show class in the methods they use to fire their coaches. Smythe, who was president of the Maple Leafs last spring when Toronto dropped four straight games to the Boston Bruins in the Stanley Cup semifinals, waited for all of 10 seconds before he gave punch the pink slip right after that final game. Norris waited until an hour before the start of that third NHL game for the Red Wings before firing coach Gadsby. Now the move was a stunner for Gadsby. His Red Wing players as well were shocked and they went out and promptly lost the game 3-2 to to the Minnesota North Stars. Besides Norris, only general manager Sid Abel knew that Gadsby's neck was on the chopping block. The move has been under consideration for approximately a week, Norris said, just after the game. Sid and I discussed it in Chicago and agreed that Bill would be released. And given his reasons for firing Gadsby, the Chicago multimillionaire said Bill just didn't fit the pattern, whatever that pattern is. Gadsby, who had coached the Wings to two straight victories, was called into Norris's office at 7 o'clock just before the game, which started at 8, and told he was fired. Gadsby said, I'm still in a state of shock after the game. I can't believe it. I'll tell you one thing. I must be one of the few guys ever fired while batting a 1,000. Bill said it was too early to talk about his plans for the future. I don't know whether I want to stay in hockey or not, he said. But if I do, I promise you one thing. It'll be a long-term contract. No more of these handshake deals. As with all his employees on the management level, Norris does not use a contract. When he hired the 42-year-old Gadsby as coach of the Wings on June 3rd of 1968, he did it with a handshake. Norris also said that Abel will continue to operate the Wings in the dual role of general manager and coach until we have a chance to hire a permanent successor. Speculation that Red Wing great Ted Lindsay would be that successor was quickly diminished by both the Red Wings and Lindsay himself. In another question to, to Norris, he denied that the coaching job would be offered to Jim Bishop, who was named executive director of the Olympia Stadium and the Red Wings in August. Norris said the 40-year-old Bishop, who's from Oshawa, Ontario, was hired because we were thin on the management level. He's aggressive and he's connected with lacrosse and other plans that we have. Now, the tall multimillionaire who has been president of the Red Wings since 1955 revealed that he first became disenchanted with Gadsby as a coach last spring. Norris said, we missed the playoffs, but I felt we had a better club than that. I thought we could have finished third. When the team went out to the West Coast for those two late games, I asked that the coaching be switched. Sid Abel took over behind the bench. Bill sat in the stands, but we lost both games, and that wasn't the answer. 
At the time, Norris drew considerable criticism from the press and fans for meddling when he ordered Abel to replace Gadsby behind that bench for those games. Gadsby's a fine man, Norris continued, but like football, hockey is becoming much more sophisticated. It's not as complex as football, but it is sophisticated. We have a lot of brains on this team, fellows like Gordie Howe, Alex Del Vecchio, Frank Mahovlich, Carl Brewer, and Bobby Bond. I don't think Bill was communicating with them. When asked to give examples, Norris declined. This was not an easy decision to arrive at, he continued. Sid and I have discussed it perhaps for a week. We felt we needed a change for the club. I don't want to end up in the situation we were in last year when we had a chance to do something and we didn't. Let's just call it a game plan that went astray and also let me say I did not judge Bill on his one lost record. Then, to a question of whether he might just coach the team himself, Norris snapped, I can. I'm an absentee owner, remember? I can only meddle. Well, what about Gordie Howell, the Detroit superstar, with whom it is said Gadsby was unable to communicate? Well, Gordie elected to be stand-up and counted when asked about the firing. Asked if he was stunned by the pregame announcement that Gadsby had been let go, the Detroit Red Wing star said, sick is a better word, just sick. There was no inkling, eh? They just up and fired him, no warning. I wonder if I still have a job on the team. You gotta wonder about that, eh? When you got a star like Gordy Howe that's upset with a management move, management probably should sit up and take notice. Bob Pennington of the Toronto Telegram sat down with Ted Green in his Ottawa General Hospital room just before the announcements of the suspensions of he and Wayne Mackey was made by NHL President Clarence Campbell. Here's what Ted had to say to Mr. Pennington about the incident and his new outlook on life. Ted begins by saying, Death gave me a little brush on the shoulder. Twice, actually. I'm lucky to be alive, to be as good as I am. The first time, I heard a priest reading the last rites over me, but I came through that operation. And later... When it had all looked so good, there was that sudden hemorrhage, the blood clot, and another operation. For three days, it was touch and go. Green had been taken by ambulance into the Ottawa General Hospital late on the night of September 21st for emergency surgery. The stick-swinging duel with Wayne Mackey of the St. Louis Blues at the Ottawa Arena had left Green with a depressed fracture of the skull. That was a polite way of putting it, said Ted. What I had, in fact, was a big hole in the head. The skull splintered, and they had to find the bits and pieces floating around inside. I didn't want to see anyone except relatives after that, and when I started to feel better, there was this setback with the hemorrhage. That was probably the most worrying time of all. I hope the NHL governors will now, finally, take some strong action against stick swinging. I don't want this thing to happen to anyone else. They must not wait until there's a fatality. Maybe I deserved what I got. Maybe I didn't. But the game itself is as much to blame as Ted Green and Wayne Mackey. For years, hockey's allowed stick fights to continue without doing too much to stamp them out. Some people have even exploited stick fights to sell tickets to fill the rinks. I've used a stick before not really knowing what it could do. The penalty wasn't enough to make you even think, let alone think twice. It's a violent game, and you hit and you get hit. Tempers boil over, and it's a case of him or you. I remember getting into a fight with Doug Moans of Chicago a couple years back. We were cross-checking, and then we started spearing, and the lumber flew around. Well, I hit him a two-hander much, much harder than Wayne hit me. He was wearing a helmet, but he still sank to his knees. If he hadn't been wearing a helmet, I would have killed him. I know that now. I understand a lot more now. I also know how I would have felt if Moans had been badly hurt. In some ways, I'm glad that it's me in here and not Mackey. Waiting. All that waiting. I don't think I could go through that. I was alone when I started hemorrhaging that second time and I blacked out. Somehow, before losing consciousness, I'd managed to flick down the switch that tells the nurse at her desk that you need attention. If I hadn't done that, Ted's voice trailed off at that point. He knew what the answer to that was. The next three days was touch and go through that blood clot. 
I'd been left with partial paralysis down the left side, left leg, left arm, and on one side of my face. They told me I should recover, but they were honest and said there's no guarantees. There's no way of telling exactly what damage had been caused. That's what I like about this Dr. Richard. He's not only a great doctor, but he's straight. That's why I'll always trust him and listen to nobody else. Well, I started to get some of the use back in my leg, and that was cheering me up. My face also improved, but the arm just hung there, limp and lifeless, like a strand of spaghetti. Nothing, nothing at all. A couple of days before the interview here now, I was kind of dreaming. It was around 6 in the morning. Suddenly in the dream, I was having about my arm seemed to cause a flicker in that arm. I tried to move it from my left shoulder and it moved. Just a little, but it moved. You know, I started to cry. I was so damned happy. Then I went into the next room and showed the guy who was lying there. I can move my arm, I shouted. See, it moves. Somebody must love me. At the time of the interview now, Ted could move the arm and the fingers on his left hand, just about an inch. Ted said, it's coming along. Me, I'm lucky. Lucky. Hospital is no place to feel sorry for yourself. Just walk down that corridor and you'll see guys who are much worse off than me. Ted went on to talk about Wayne Mackey. I want to say something about Wayne Mackey. He should not be punished any more than Ted Green. I hold no malice against him. My wife Patricia and I wrote to Mackey over the weekend and we told him how we feel. We also wrote a letter for all the Boston players saying there should not be any retaliation against Wayne Mackey. It could just as easily have been him in here. What happened in the end was that I zigged when I should have zagged. I'm certain he didn't intend to hit me so hard. It's just that nobody really knows what damage a hockey stick can cause until it happens. I didn't see the stick coming, and looking at the pictures later, I still don't understand why. I remember falling down and then not being able to speak or move the left side of my body. Everybody seemed a long, long way away, yet I can recall most of it. I can recall a doctor saying I had a depressed fracture of the skull. I recall a priest saying the last rites before I went on the operating table. I recall Eddie Westfall of the Bruins floating around somewhere in the distance when I came around in the recovery room. Now I found out later that five or six of the team had tried to see me, but they'd been refused permission to enter. Then Ed went back to the hotel and he put on a pair of white shoes and came back to the hospital. He found a white jacket and had gone into the recovering room posing as an intern. It must have been getting near done when he came out and told the boys, Ted can speak, he's going to be okay. Only then did they go back to the hotel and get some shut-eye. At first, Doc Richard was very pleased with me. I'd come through well, he said. In three or four weeks, I'd be having a second operation to put the plate in my head. After that, there's no reason why my skull shouldn't be as strong as ever it had been. I'd always heard that it takes something like this to give you a new sense of values. Well, I was kind of a helter-skelter guy before. I'm not that same person anymore. As for the immediate future, Ted says, I'll just take it easy for a month or two. Have my first real Christmas at home in years now. Next year, I should have another operation to put that plate in my head. Now, as far as hockey is concerned this season, I'll just have to forget it. But that's what happens when you're just lucky to be alive. On October 18th, the National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell took steps that he hopes would eliminate stick swinging. The longtime president fined and suspended defenseman Ted Green of the Bruins and St. Louis minor league forward Wayne Mackey for their part in the near-fatal stick swinging duel in Ottawa on September 21st. Green is suspended for 13 games either this year or next during the regular season or the playoffs when he is termed medically fit to return to action by competent medical authorities to be designated by Campbell. Mackey, playing at this time with Buffalo Bisons of the American Hockey League, was suspended immediately for 30 days. Both players received automatic $300 fines. They're fined $100 for receiving match penalties and $200 for their stick swinging. Campbell's action represents a considerable loss to Green. 
He's an all-star defenseman who has undergone brain surgery twice since the incident, and he'll eventually lose pay for 13 games, which represents a figure in the vicinity of seven dollars to $8,000. Mackey also loses 13 days' pay under the suspension rules, but his contract is nowhere near the neighborhood of Green's, and the total dollar and cents loss for him will be considerably less. Boston General Manager Milt Schmidt agreed with the president's ruling. Although it's a severe penalty, it's something that has to be done to stop six-winging in hockey. There's no room for that in our game anymore. Campbell said the fines and suspensions among the heaviest in his long tenure were intended to be exemplary in their effects for the future welfare of the game itself. The league president openly discussed last Tuesday's hearing in Ottawa, where Green met Mackey for the first time since the fight, and they immediately shook hands. Now, Campbell reconstructed the events that led to the near-fatal blow by Mackey. Here's what Clarence said. Green struck Mackey in the face with his gloved hand, knocking him off balance, and he fell to the ice, but got up quickly. Referee Ken Bodendistel signaled a slow whistle for a foul to Green and allowed the play to continue. Green said, Mackey tried to give me a spear job and I wrapped him with my stick. Mackey categorically denies he made any attempt to spear Green when he got up off the ice. He states he made no effort to retaliate because he thought Green would get a penalty and he didn't want to get one. A still photo shows clearly that Green hit Mackey a blow on the left side of the head and neck with the blade of his stick. When Mackey recovered his balance following the blow from Green's stick, he turned and faced Green. Both had their sticks up in front of their faces and for a few seconds each made several feints toward the other. Then Mackey delivered a straight overhead two-handed blow, which glanced off Green's stick and struck him on the right side of the head, and he fell to the ice. He recovered in an upright position quickly, but sank down again, unable to move. Now, the league president said two Boston officials, Milt Schmidt and Coach Harry Sinden, supported Green's claim that Mackey had attempted to spear him, but he said none of the game officials could confirm it. However, completely independent, competent witnesses who were in good position to see definitely confirmed that Mackey did attempt to spear Green in the midsection. Campbell declined to name who these witnesses were. This testimony I accept, Campbell said, not only because of the sources, but because it establishes the sequence of events which would have been highly improbable if some provocative action had not taken place by Mackey. There is little difference in the two players' contribution to the incident, but if any, the greater share rests with Green. Now we go from swinging sticks and a severe injury to preventing injuries. Two NHL goalkeepers who have eschewed the face mask are now switching to full-time wearing of the fiberglass protection. Joe Daly and Cesar Maniego in the opening games this year both put on facial protection and they say they'll keep on using it. For Daly, the adjustment to covering up in goal began during training camp and already he has reason to be thankful. Daly said, I'll bet the mask has saved me about 20 stitches already. After wearing the mask continuously in exhibition games, Daly felt sufficiently confident to use it last Saturday night when the Penguins opened their regular season against the Oakland Seals. That game ended in a two-all tie. I can't fault the mask on either goal, Daly remarked. I can't honestly say it bothered me except that it was too hot. That's a common complaint from netminders who begin wearing the facial protection. Considering Daly's daring occupation of goalkeeping, he's been fortunate during his career. I don't think I've had more than 50 stitches, that's all, Joe says. Daly added 12 to his total two years ago during an exhibition game in a dimly lit arena in Belleville, Ontario. That's when a Minnesota player's hard drive opened up his forehead for those dozen stitches. He was hospitalized overnight for observation. But that injury still didn't convince him to wear the mask. 50 stitches and a broken jaw haven't convinced Daly of the need for added protection even now. However, 
Coach Red Kelly doesn't agree, and his opinion weighs a lot. I'd still like to play without the mask, Daly says, but Red told me to go ahead and use it. Daly's mask is composed of layers of light fiberglass and was custom made by Ernie Higgins of Boston, who's made several for NHL players. The cost of the mask was $60. Higgins guarantees that it won't leave Joe in stitches. As for Cesar Maniego, the six foot three goalkeeper with the Minnesota North Stars, he's been hepped to the mask man bit since 1962-63 when he was with the Montreal Canadiens. That season, he got his first fiberglass facial protection at the suggestion of Jacques Plante, the guy who's done more to popularize masks since the Lone Ranger and Batman. That mask, a pretzel model made famous by Plante that Maniego still has and uses, gave Caesar trouble with his peripheral vision. So the lanky goalie tucked the face guard away, figuring it was better to risk his mug than give an occasional goal because he couldn't see a foe out of the corner of his eyes. In the two seasons that Caesar has been patrolling the net for Minnesota, he's only used the mask on special occasions, practice sessions, and against the hated Chicago Blackhawks. The Blackhawks, who are known to most NHL goaltenders as headhunters from Chicago, seem to believe the best way to score goals is to bank the puck in off a goalie's chin. This season, Maniego decided to give his mask a full-time try. He wore it against Philadelphia on opening night, recorded a shutout, equaling the number of times he blanked the opposition last season, just wince. I haven't decided definitely if I'm going to use the mask all the time, Caesar says. I'll wear it against Chicago, of course, and then plan to use it Wednesday in New York. I filed down the eye holes a little bit, and that gave me no trouble seeing against the Flyers. But he added with characteristic modesty, that wasn't Philly whitewashing, wasn't a good test of a mask or a maskless Maniego. Our guys played great defense, he said. They made it easy. I only had a couple of tough chances. That was maybe more than just the North Stars playing well. It was probably due to the fact that the Flyers' attack this season is basically non-existent. And now it's time for our Person of the Week. The choice for this week was made long before we learned of the news of the passing of Hockey Hall of Fame member Jim Gregory. I knew Jim a bit. I met him back in the 60s at a high school awards banquet when he attended in our hometown of Dunville, Ontario. I reconnected with him many years later when I began working with hockey history. Jim was a great guy. I can't say enough about him and neither can the rest of the hockey world. The choice this week was because he was squarely on the hot seat as a general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, the freshman general manager. Jim was just starting his National Hockey League career after working in the Maple Leaf organization in various capacities since he was a teenager. Paul Rimstead in Canadian Magazine talked to Jim and I've got a few excerpts from that interview. Jim Gregory, 33, is a squat man with the build of a fullback, which he once was. The best darn fullback in Dunville, Ontario, population of a bit over 5,000 and about 74 miles southwest of Toronto. When Gregory was a teenager in Dunville, the eldest of six children of one of the town's founding families, he knew he liked sports. But who would ever have guessed that he would become the general manager of the world's best-known hockey team before he was as old as some of the players. Jim has very dark hair, a permanent five o'clock shadow, and a deep tan. His mother, who is Lebanese, has never been away from Dunville. His father, a stationary engineer, works in Oshawa, Ontario, which is over 100 miles away from Dunville. He returns home on weekends. Jim Gregory has come a long way. He's changed the Maple Leafs Hotel at their Peterborough training camp. The Leafs always stayed at the Empress Hotel, an older downtown building with a large lobby. This year, they went to the newer Holiday Inn. Why, says Jim? Because the team hasn't been staying at the kind of hotels the Maple Leaf Hockey Club should be staying at. This is supposed to be the top organization in hockey. The rooms are bigger at the Holiday Inn. That isn't the only hotel we've changed as well, says Gregory. 
The first thing we did was to change that place they used to stay at in St. Louis. You wouldn't believe that place. Cockroaches and everything. Now, of course, the reason the Leafs stayed at that hotel, he said, was because of Punch Imlac's superstition. It seemed that the team, on its first road trip to St. Louis, discovered they had no reservations because of an error somewhere down the line. They had to search for a place, found an old hotel, and moved in for the night. Well, you know what happened. The Leafs beat the Blues on that trip, and of course, Imlac never moved from a winning hotel. Had they known, the Leafs might have blown that game just to keep get away from the place. It was terrible, Gregory said. We're changing hotels in a few other cities, too. Chicago, for one. Jim left Dunville as a teenager to attend St. Michael's College in Toronto, famed then as a junior hockey institution. He was hoping to play for the St. Mike's Majors, but unfortunately when he tried out, he didn't make the team. That was in 1953, and Reverend David Bauer was the coach of St. Mike's at that time. Jim, when he failed to make the club, still wanted to be part of it, so he was given a job keeping statistics, and he eventually became the assistant manager. Soon after that, he was named trainer as well. After four years, Jim graduated from St. Mike's and started working in the purchasing department of Colgate Palmolive Limited in Toronto, and he took a business and purchasing extension course at the University of Toronto. During his almost six years at Paul. Colgate Palmolive, hockey remained a part-time job with him, first as manager of the St. Mike's team, then manager coach of the club when it moved to Neil McNeil Secondary School. Finally, he was named coach and manager of the Toronto Marlboros by the parent Maple Leafs. When Gregory graduated from the Marlboro job in 1967, the Leafs sent him to Vancouver as manager coach of their Western Hockey League farm club. Last year, 68, he was a scout with the organization. Jim says his biggest challenge is to rebuild a strong organization. He says we're strong at center, okay on defense, but we're weak on the wings and in goal. Everybody in the league, it seems, is weak at left wing. George Armstrong can't go forever on right wing, and hell, Ron Ellis is the only stable one I've got on that side. But I think Marv Edwards will be the biggest surprise in the league. Marv is a goaltender who was drafted from the Pittsburgh system, and he's expected to share the goaltending duties with Bruce Gamble in this, his NHL rookie season, at age 34. Johnny Bauer may be a third goaltender and sort of goaltending coach, Gregory said. When does this story come out? Well, you can say that Johnny will possibly be the goaltender with Canada's national team. Those rumors have been swirling for a while, but Bauer himself says he doesn't know if he's interested in playing for the Nationals. Gregory said, I intend to do a lot of traveling this winter as well. It's a lot different now with 12 teams in the league. You see the other teams only about three times in your own building all season. You might see a guy play three bad games, but he plays 57 great games outside, and we have to adapt. We have to see the other teams way more often than we were used to in the past. Gregory plans to travel with the Leafs on the road this season, working closely with new coach John McClellan. Jim says, I think Johnny's going to be a great coach. I tried to hire him to coach the Marlies five years ago. Well, he's quiet and deep, says Gregory. He's not as tough as Punch, but he's not soft, that's for sure. There'll be a change, but this is why we changed, isn't it? It wasn't a change just for the sake of change. How do I get along with Punch now? Well, he wished me luck when he left, and I was talking to him about two weeks ago. We get along just fine. That was an interview with Jim Gregory with Paul Rimstead of Canadian Magazine. We wish condolences to Jim's family and friends. He will be a person who will be sadly missed by the hockey community. Our person of the week, Jim Gregory. So that's our show for this week. Episode number two is in the books. And what did we learn on this particular 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast? Well, we learned on opening night that the Montreal Canadiens still look pretty good and the Chicago Blackhawks don't look very good at all. They're not a good club. We learned that NHL owners like Bruce Norris of the Red Wings and Stafford Smythe of Toronto really have very little class in the manner in which they handle key personnel matters. 
I think it's safe to say that the fortunes of the Maple Leafs and Red Wings would be enhanced if ownership let their management teams do the jobs for which they're paid without interference from the amateur wannabes who have a lot of money but not a lot of brains. We learned that Bobby Hull said he'd like to be traded, but does he really mean it? Most of us don't believe him. Who could afford him? This week we also learned a little bit about Garnet Ace Bailey, a rookie in 1969, but turned out to be one of the greatest guys in hockey as far as personality goes. He was a great guy, and we lost him way too soon. And we also learned that terrible Teddy Green, possibly too late, has learned a valuable lesson in the worst way possible. We learned that if you live by the sword, chances are you actually might die by the sword. Ted very nearly did. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Our intro music comes to us courtesy of the Rural Alberta Advantage, and other musical pieces are by Andy Cole as well. Our stories are compiled with files from the Toronto Star and Globe and Mail, and of course the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at1969hockeynews, on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey, and at our WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. We'll be back next week with lots of news and notes, including an interesting interview Carl Brewer gave to the Detroit Free Press's Jack Berry. We'll have some expansion talk from Vancouver and Buffalo, neither of whom at that point were yet committed to paying that exorbitant $6 million expansion fee to the NHL. Until then, check out Andy Cole's Let's Write a Song podcast for some great music and conversation. And thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We'll see you next time.